The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, church. I don't know about you, but boy, shaking me up now. That was very powerful. Thank you, Brian. I'm still shaking. Well, today's reading is from the uh, book of Luke, chapter 8. There are three different readings. The first one is from verse 22 to verse 29. I think the reading in the back here. And there are Bibles in the front of you if you don't have one. And it reads, One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying unto one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city and the country. And then people went out to see what has happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man Demons are gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Then the man from whom the demon had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your home and declare how, how much God had done for you. And he went away proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead and do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for he is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her hand, taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise, and her spirit returned. And she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the way of the word. Amen.
So this series is called Cross and Crown, the Gospel of Luke. And it's the story about who Jesus was and what he did. Now, the the title points to the two natures of Jesus. Cross, which points to his humanity and the fact that he came to die on our behalf as our human sacrifice and what the death that you and I owed, he took and bore on our behalf on the cross. Then the crown points to his divinity or his godness, if you will, and the fact that he was, whenever he came, the true king returning to the world that he had made. Now, as we're going through this series and we're looking at his life, we're in chapter 8 today and there's a lot of stuff to, to cover, but as we're going through this series, we're trying to feature both of those natures together. His humanity and his divinity, his humanness or his godness, if you will, the cross and the crown together, because only those things together that give us the picture of who Jesus is. If you miss either one of those, uh, you're going to miss the complete picture of who he is, and you're not going to get, you're not really going to understand who he was or what he did, who he is on our behalf. If you miss his divinity, his godness, then Jesus tends to become like a, any other historical figure, like Julius Caesar or Plato or Shakespeare, some uh, human figure who cast a long shadow, was very influential, but just as, just as a human figure from history. We can marvel at who he was and what he did, but it doesn't really go far beyond that. If, but if you miss his humanity... If you tend to think of Jesus as just some sort of like, I don't know, apart from him, the fact that he was a human being who woke up in the morning and probably had morning breath and had to eat because he got hungry. He had to sleep because he got tired. He had to go to the bathroom. He knew pain. He knew struggle. He knew heartache. He knew what it meant to be uh, betrayed. He knew hard work. He was a carpenter for most of his life. His ministry years that we're covering here, only three years of approximately 30, 33 years of his life. He knew what it, was, what it meant to get splinters in your hand and have calloused fingers. If you miss his humanity, then the story of Jesus tends to become something more like a fairy tale. Like Mother Goose or, I'm trying to remember other fairy tales. Jack be nimble, Jack be quick. It's just like a, Snow White or kind of thing, like it's distant and like a myth. Jesus was a man, but he wasn't only a man. He was God, but he wasn't only God. As the incarnate Lord, which means that the God who took on flesh or became a human, as the incarnate Lord, he was the fullness of both the humanity And the divinity, fullness of both in action. He was the power of God, and yet he was a man at the same time. He could identify with you and me all at once. He cared for people because he understood what it meant to be a person. He cares now because he understands what it means to be a person. And yet he had power that you and I do not possess. And we see that power on full display in our passages today. 
Jesus wasn't just a nice guy with interesting teaching. He was the all-powerful, all-knowing creator God. He was the rightful king returning to his land, his land that he made that was rightfully his to reunite it with his kingdom. Now this section, uh, chapter 8, where the space we're actually covering is all the way from verse 22 through verse 56. We're going to have to fly through it today. But this is a long section with a lot in it. But we see one big theme unfolding. That in each interaction that Jesus has, we see that he is the master of every situation that he comes in contact with. We're going to see three things that we're going to feature this morning. That Jesus is the master of the earth. That Jesus is the master of his enemies, and Jesus is the master of life and death. Jesus is the master. Jesus is the master of the earth. Jesus is the master of his enemies, and Jesus is the master of life and death. I keep having flashbacks as I've been preparing this sermon. Um, Most of you are probably not old enough to remember. Well, maybe you guys are. Anybody remember He-Man from the 80s? the cartoon that they made in order to sell us action figures. Uh, I, I loved He-Man, but I was not allowed to watch He-Man uh, because what my mom would do is she would ask me, now there were several things I couldn't watch, and well, I, you know, we'll, we can talk about that another time, but um, she would ask me, because the, the, the title of the cartoon, if you remember, is He-Man, Master of the Universe. And mom would ask me, Randy, who's the master of the universe? And I say, Jesus is the master of the universe, but I still want that toy. <laughs> I, I got a back door into it in that a, a friend gave me a toy, and so she didn't tell me I had to throw it away. And so I had one He-Man and one other character, no bad guys for them to fight because they were too evil, but that's a, that's a whole other thing. Jesus is the master of the earth. That first section that Nomate read, verses 22 to 25, we see that Jesus, he's been teaching, and at the end, he's tired, and he gets into a boat because the crowds are pressing in on him. He was, might have even been preaching from the boat or preaching from the water, because if you're preaching to large crowds before we had amplification and microphones, you had to find a way to naturally amplify your voice, and the natural way for that to happen was you could stand on a lake or on a body of water, and your voice would bounce off the water, and it would amplify up to the people who were sitting on the bank. And at the end of that, he's tired. The people are pressing in on him. They want his attention. They want to be around him. He kind of feels like, uh, like he's, he's exhausted at the end of it. And he has the disciples say, hey, let's go out to the other side of the lake, or the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they were fishermen, so it was no big deal for them to take him across. And he's exhausted. And so he goes down to the bottom of the boat, and he sleeps underneath, uh, in the, in the um, stowaway under, underneath the area. I'm not a nautical guy. I have no idea. I don't remember what they call it. But anyway, he goes below deck and sleeps. <laughs> and as, he, as they're traveling across the lake, it was not unusual for the Sea of Galilee because it's surrounded by mountains and the way the gorges are around it, the weather can turn very quickly and the cold air rushes down the mountains, down the gorges and out across the lake and all of a sudden it can go from sunny and nice and calm to a gale force storm and that's what happened as they were out in the lake. And these experienced fishermen, these experienced boaters, they get out there and it becomes so bad, they begin to freak out. They think this is it. This is the time that we're gonna die. And some of them thinks, hey, 
let's go down and wake up Jesus. Why is he sleeping? We're about to die. And they go down and wake him up and they tell him what's happening and he comes up above deck and he miraculously speaks out to the storm and says, peace. And immediately the wind stops and the waves stop and it's peaceful. Creation met its creator at that point. We see the authority of Jesus. He's not just a nice guy. I think Jesus gets a really bad rap in our society right now. He's taught as a nice teacher. We picture him as a sort of nice guy caring for some reason like a lamb around his shoulders and sometimes with a creepy smile on his face depending on what picture you pay attention to. But Jesus Christ was the Lord of all creation. And whenever he stood on the deck of that boat and he spoke to nature itself and said, peace, nature could not help but to listen because creation met its creator at that moment. Jesus was and is the master of all creation. He's the master of the earth. And then we see what is the response that his people around him have to this exercise of his authority and his power. It says his disciples in verse 25, uh, which he had been with them for a while now, it says they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? But before that, Jesus' response is very interesting to me. Because if you can picture being the moment, you're on the boat, the storm comes up, you're getting ready to die seemingly, the boat is gonna go down, it says they were in trouble. They're freaking out. And when they go to Jesus, he comes up and he speaks and rebukes the wind and the waves and they cease Then he asked them, where is your faith? It's natural to me to think at that moment to be afraid. And I think like it's a pretty good thing for them to understand enough about Jesus at this point to think, hey, like we might be the fishermen and the expert boaters, but we need Jesus to see if he can do anything. We had a sense that Jesus could do something in the moment that they could not do. And they were right. He spoke and the wind and the sea calmed down. But Jesus is bothered with them. He asked them, where is your faith? It's natural for them to be afraid, but he's asking them, he's incredulous about it. Where is your faith? And the reason that he's asking them wasn't because he's asking them, why don't you have faith? He's asking them, why is it not in me? It's not faith in some idea that God is, can control the wind and the waves and he can keep us safe. But it's faith in the person that is there in the boat with you, who is the Lord God incarnate, who is the creator of heaven and earth. And to be with him is to be safe no matter what is going on around them. He wasn't asking them, why don't you have faith in general? 
He's saying, why don't you have faith in me? And to understand who I am. To be with him is to be as safe as possible. If they understood that, they wouldn't be afraid or they wouldn't be afraid for long. It's interesting to me, he meets them and he accepts them where they are in their lack of faith. He meets them there, but he's not pleased about it. Because he's saying if we have faith in him and who he is, then that should change us in the way that we view the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Excuse me. We just finished the most tumultuous and probably confusing election in recent history. And it has many people shaken. Depending on whatever side you fall on, when you see not just the results of the election, but we see the things that have happened in the time that has passed since then, it has many of us shaken. And that is natural and that is understandable, just like it was natural and understandable for the disciples to be afraid as that storm was about seemingly about to take their boat down. But even if it's natural and understandable, as disciples of Jesus, the question is, where is your faith? Is it in some political system or some general sense of who God is? Or is your faith in Jesus Christ himself, the creator of heaven and earth, the master of the earth? To be with him is to be as safe as possible. Even when it looks like you're surrounded by a deathly storm. Last week, we discussed our vision to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus by planting community groups in every neighborhood and planting a church in every community along the Grand Strand. We, as we laid it out, there was a, it was a big vision. It was a big goal, and there are lots of things that we do not have. We're going to need leaders. We're going to need people. We're going to need finances. We're going to need a lot more concrete planning than we have now. There's a lot of things we're going to need that we don't have But there's one thing that we do have that we have to have to go forward. The one necessary thing. And that's the presence and power of the one who created heaven and earth. Where is your faith? If we're in the boat with him, who cares about the storm? Because we have him. If the storm gets crazy around us, and it seems like everything is pointed against us, it just gives him a better chance to display his glory. Jesus is the master of the earth, and he's in total control. Where's our faith? Jesus is not only the master of the earth that we see in that section, but we look down in verses 26 through 39, and we see that he's the master of his enemies. In this, in this part of the story, <clears throat> he travels across the lake. He calms the sea. The disciples are like, who is this guy who even commands the wind and the waves? He gets to the other side and he gets out and he's met by the local crazy man. He lives out in the, among the, in the cemetery and he is demonically possessed 
They tried to chain him to keep him from harming himself or harming others. And he continually, it tells us in other accounts, he continually breaks the bonds that they, try, that they bind him with. It's a scary situation. But he runs up to Jesus as soon as Jesus lands. And it says that he cries out in verse 28. What have you do to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded, verse 29, the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Then Jesus asked him, this is scary, this is like, horror movie stuff here. What is your name? And he said, Legion. I picture that's the way he said it. <clears throat> For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, this is where the story gets even weirder. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission, and the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. That's kind of freaky, isn't it? You know what we see here in the midst of the freakiness of the pork jumping off the side of the mountain to the lake and drowning and the demons and the legion and the whole thing, we see that Jesus is master of his enemies. We see rebel authorities meet the true king and they are no match for him. The guy walking up to them is a poor Jewish peasant with little or no educational training. He is a carpenter by trade. He has no army, he has no glory, no armor, no weapon, and yet whenever he walks up into the presence of these powerful demons who had controlled this man in such a way that they, the villagers around could not bind him, he was a, a menace to himself and a menace to the society. Whenever they saw him, they recognized authority and they bowed down and begged him to not send them into the abyss. The rebel authorities met the true king. I find it interesting in this case that the story of Jesus that we see throughout Luke is full of people not understanding who Jesus is. And many of them are Jews and educated Jews who knew or should have known what to expect in the coming Messiah. But they missed him. And yet Jesus lands on the shore, this crazy man runs up to him, and he and the demons recognize exactly who Jesus was. He wasn't just some peasant carpenter. He was the almighty God, the true king, and all, all must bow before him. They knew exactly who he was. Then I find it interesting that after this happens, as you see how the people around this whole uh, circumstance respond, that this man who was once crazy and out of his mind, he becomes personally devoted and attached to Jesus. The section that Nomante read, it says that the, the, when the, the shepherds saw what had happened with the pigs, 
They freaked out, ran to the village, told the villagers what had happened, and the, the people of the village come out, or the people of the city come out to talk to Jesus. And when they come out, they see the man clothed and in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. They know it's the man. And the contrast of how they respond and how the man responds is mind-boggling to me. Here's the man who was once crazy, who was outcast in society, a menace and a danger to himself and the rest of the village. And whenever he is clothed in his right man, when he's been delivered by Jesus, he sits at the feet of Jesus. And when the people in the village come, they see him and they recognize him. The response of the villagers is they ask Jesus, would you please leave? They're freaked out. It might be uh, superstitious, superstition that causes them to ask him to leave. Hey, we don't understand what's going on here. Would you leave? But like, it's, like what has happened, even though it might freak them out, like the pigs and the man and try to figure it all out, but something amazing, miraculous, and great and good has happened. A man who was once demon-possessed is now in his right mind and clothed at the feet of Jesus. Or it could have just been the fact that Jesus has brought a disruption into their area. To lose a herd of pigs, a large herd of pigs, would be a large economic hit for the people who owned the pigs and for the whole entire village. And the response of the people who have the almighty creator, God, the master of heaven and earth in their midst with them at this point, say we would rather not be disturbed. We'd rather not experience further loss. We'd rather not be confused. We'd not have to deal with having to try to figure out what is going on here. Would you just please leave? We see in this section that Jesus doesn't only possess all power, but he possesses all authority. There's a difference between power and authority. Some people have authority and no power. Some people have power and no authority, but when we see them together, it's a mighty thing. He is, he is the authority in charge. He is the king. What he says goes, it has to happen, and he has the power to back it up. And then we see that it's a fearful thing to be on the wrong side of that authority and power. These mighty and powerful demons beg Jesus not to send them into the abyss. They bargain with him to send them into the pigs instead. The thing that scares me about this story is that it's, we see that it's possible to see the power and the goodness of God on display, which is what the villagers saw, right? When they walk up, they see the power and the goodness of God on display. The goodness of God and that he delivered this man and the power that he had the power and the authority to do it. And yet they rejected it. And it's possible for you and me to see the power of God on display and yet reject it. Because we'd just rather not be disturbed. I don't want to have to deal with what I'm going to have to deal with if I accept that Jesus is who he says he is. Because if he is who he says he is, and that means that he's king, he's the master, he's the boss, and I'm not, and I must bow my knee to him. And I just don't know if I'm willing to give up 
seeming control of my life, even if it's just seeming control of my life, to do what I want to do now rather than to be in right standing with the king and the master of heaven and earth. But then we see with this man, we see that when you are personally delivered by Jesus, that you are personally devoted to the deliverer. When these people, when they asked him, verse 37, all the people of the surrounding country, the Gerasenes, asked him to depart for them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned, but before that we see that the demon-possessed man who was now freed and in his right mind Actually, just after that, I'm sorry, in verse 38, it says he begged that he might be with him. It wasn't enough for him just to be delivered and be in his right mind. He recognized, I'm in the presence of the God of heaven and earth, the master of heaven and earth, and he's the one I wanna be with. I think a lot of us look for things from God or things from Jesus, But when you've been personally delivered from sin and death, when you've been personally delivered from your own mess, from your background, from the circumstances of your life that had you destined to be apart from him, you realize that he's the prize. Not just to, not to, I'm not gonna go to hell or he's helped me with my marriage He's helped me be a better friend or a better son or a better brother. He's helped me with my finances. We realize that that's not the prize, that he's the prize. I think it's heartbreaking. The people in this village had God Almighty, Jesus, God in flesh with them in their midst And they asked him to leave. And yet, there are many of us in this room that we do that all the time. We miss him for everything else. Jesus is the master of his enemies. But not only that, we see that Jesus is the master of life and death. The section in verses 40 through 56 is one big story that has two parts. Jesus leaves the garrisons and he goes back on the boat across the other side. And when he gets to the other side of the lake, there's a big crowd waiting for him. And he starts to go with them in the crowd. They're in the the village. And uh, in, in an ancient village, the roads were very narrow because they didn't have cars, they weren't freeways, they're just very narrow lanes. And so uh, it wouldn't take a very large crowd, and it says that it is a large crowd to really press in around somebody as he's traveling through the village. There's a large crowd around him, and a man came up to him named Jairus. He was the ruler of the synagogue. That means he was the one who planned the worship services for the local church in that village. And Jairus comes to him and he says, would you come and help me? I have a 12-year-old daughter and she's dying. 
And so Jesus starts to go and travel to Jairus' house. And it's probably hard to get around because the crowd's trying to press in on him. He's lots of people around. They're all pushing and shoving. And they're trying to get somewhere. If you ever tried to uh, leave or work through like a, a crowd at a football game or a concert. And you're all pressed in and you're trying to get somewhere. And this not working the most efficiently. You're trying to get there. And as he's doing so, all of a sudden Jesus stops the crowd. And he says, who touched me? Now, it's kind of a crazy question to ask because probably everybody's touching him. They can't help but touch him because they're pushed in on in this small lane. And Peter, in fact, says, because Peter's the one who's always going to speak up and say, oh, that's such a crazy question, Jesus, because everybody's touching you. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I mean, somebody touched me because I felt power go out from me, which is kind of a cool and crazy thing to say, right? I felt power go out from me, like Superman or something. And he stops and says, who touched me? And nobody will step forward. And finally, some woman who's there who, it says, notices that she, uh, that she is no longer hidden. She's not hidden. She comes forward and she declares in the presence of all the people that she had touched him. This woman had a lady issue and she had been bleeding for 12 years and it would not stop. Now that would be a problem in any circumstance. There's all kinds of problems that would come from losing that kind of blood all the time. Weakness, you can imagine, you know, particularly in the ancient world, like it would be an incredible it just be a terribly messy situation to be in. And then on top of that, if you were in this situation in Jewish society, you were considered ceremonially unclean. You were never allowed to come to the temple and worship with, the, your, with your people, which meant you were ostracized from society. And it meant that the people around you would not touch you because if they touched you, they became ceremonially unclean and they would have to go through a whole ritual in order to cleanse themselves before they could go to the temple. So this woman probably has been hardly touched by another person for over a decade. And we're told in another gospel that she had spent all the money she had with every physician that she could find in order to try to find a solution. And nothing seemed to get better. It only got worse. And she hears Jesus is coming and she's too ashamed to say that she needs his help. People probably wouldn't want to be around her. She finds some way. I'm going to sneak in unnoticed. And if I can just touch the, it may say the hem of his garment, but it would be the tassel of, a, of the kind of prayer shawl that he would wear over his shoulder. It would hang in the back and the front. And there would be a tassel. And she says, if I can just touch the tassel at the corner of his garment, I will be healed. And she does, and immediately she's healed. Jesus feels the power go out from him, and he stops, and he says, who is it? She comes out and confesses, it was me. And it's interesting at this point, the reason that he brings her out and tells her in front of everybody, daughter, which he doesn't, he doesn't use that term of endearment with anyone else in, that we have recorded in the New Testament. Daughter, your faith has made you well go in peace. It's really cool and interesting the fact that he does that publicly. It's not to embarrass her. It's because the people around her would need to know publicly that she had been cleaned, that she'd been cleansed and healed. 
to know that she could be brought back into society again. But as that's happening, it says in verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from Jairus' house came and said, can you imagine this? I have a nine-year-old daughter. Can you imagine getting the word, your daughter is dead? Don't bother the teacher anymore. And Jesus says, don't fear, only believe. He goes to the house, everyone's weeping and mourning. He goes into her room with Peter, John, James, and her parents. And he walks up, and when he says she's only sleeping, it says they laughed at him knowing she was dead. Now, it's interesting, we don't know who laughed at him. Was it the people, was it James, John, and Peter and her parents, or was it the other mourners around? It doesn't specify, but people around Jesus laughed when he said she's only sleeping because she, they knew she was dead. And he called her the same way that her mother would call her, child arise, the way her mother would call her in the morning to tell her it's time to get up. Daughter or child arise, it says her spirit returned and she got up at once and her parents were amazed I think would be an understatement of the emotions that were coursing through them at the time what we see in these two circumstances the woman who's healed from the issue of blood would not stop for 12 years and the man's daughter who had died and he raises her up is that humanity's greatest fear meets its match in Jesus You and my, our greatest fear is death. The human existence is made up of an underlying fear of death. It's what drives so much of what we do. Even when we don't consciously realize it. But we see here that humanity's greatest fear meets its match when the master of life and death shows up. We see the people's response to God's, to Jesus' authority. The woman was afraid when she realized she wasn't hidden, and then he brings her out and reassures her. We see the people around Jesus laughed at him, and then her parents were amazed. It's interesting to me, we see here, that his own disciples missed the point of who Jesus was. The Gentile villagers back at the Gerasenes missed who Jesus was. The Jews, his own people, missed who he was. The question for us today is do we see him, do you see him today in his power, in his glory? Do you see the master of heaven and earth, the master of his enemies, and the master of life and death, it's himself as your Lord. Is he a fairy tale character to you? Do you personally see him as master? Do you know him as master? We see that nature recognized him. His disciples, the villagers, his Jews, they all missed it. Even, uh, Even the man who asked him to come and heal his daughter when his daughter was dead, he didn't think Jesus could do anything. But we see nature itself recognize Jesus as his master. 
We see it not only recognize him in his words to the winds and waves when he said, peace be still, and it obeyed. But we see that nature itself recognized its master as he hung on the cross. And it says that darkness covered the world. It's as if nature itself recognizes its Lord, its master on the cross, dying the lowly death of a human at the hand of other humans. And, dark, and nature itself mourns at the moment. It recognizes, it responds to its creator, its master. We see his great enemies recognized him. We see enemies that had ruled nations and people for generations Before he even commanded them to come out of the man, they were begging him. They declared him to be the son of the most high God. They recognized him. But not only would they recognize him then, but they would recognize him whenever he rose from the death that he died on that cross and he led captivity captive. He disarmed his enemies and he openly triumphed over them. We see that death itself recognized him. Death itself would be bested by him. Death, oh death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? For death is swallowed up in victory, 1 Corinthians tells us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, Not only was he the creator of life, he would become the victor over death. He would be the master over life as well as death in his death on the cross, in his burial, in his resurrection. Nature, Satan, and his mighty army as well as death had a rightful claim over you and me. That is, until he came, until the master showed up. And they all cowered in his presence. They all cowered in his power until the moment they thought they had conquered him on the cross only to find out that what they thought was their victory would be their ultimate defeat. Where is your faith? Who is this man? That's the two questions that the, that's the question that the disciples asked. Who is this man? Jesus asked him, where is your faith? And you and I must answer this. He is and will be your master who loved you and you love because he first loved you or he will be your master as a defeated rebel. But he'll be one of those. How will we we respond? Believer, if you're a professing believer this morning, who is your master? In your mind, who is your master? Is he weak? Is he impotent? Is he distant? Is he tyrannical? Is he forgettable? Or is he powerful? Is he humble? Is he loving? Is he the sum total of all your hopes? Is he your master?
Jesus is master of heaven and earth. He's the master of his enemies. He's the master of life and death. This is your God, believer. This is your savior. This is your king. This is your master. This is your Jesus. As we're heading into Thanksgiving weekend, today, we have so much to be thankful for, right? Many of us have received good things on this earth, and that's awesome. That's great. Many of us have an earthly feast waiting for us in a few days. I'm going to put the feedback on. I cannot wait. A bourbon pecan pie is waiting for me on Thursday. I've been saving up calories and fat grams just for that day. And that's awesome. I'm going to be incredibly thankful. But if you have a taste of eternal life now, if you have a taste of eternal joy now, if you have a lasting hope now, if you have a true feast coming in the presence of joy, love, and peace in the presence of your great master to come, how overflowing should you be? How overflowing should we be both now and forevermore? If you are a believer this morning, your Jesus, your Savior, is the master of all. And he has you in the palm of his hand. No matter what the storm may look like around you, you can be confident because your faith is in him. And if your faith is not in him, I pray this would be the morning that you would do that, that you would place your faith and trust in him, that you confess him as master, bow your knee to him, and confess him as Lord. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing a song in response to our master and to our king. And then Dale is gonna lead us in communion together as we remember all that he has done for us as we have a precursor feast to the feast that's coming in a few days. It's really a precursor feast to the feast that's coming at the end of this age when we sit with him forever. And we have bourbon pecan pie that has no calories or fat grams. It's gonna be awesome. Father, I pray for us this morning. God, I think many of us have weak pictures of you. We think of you as a nice guy or some distant God. We forget that you came to us, that you are with us, that you are ever present with us. You told us that you would never leave us or forsake us. And we forget that you have all power in your hand. You're the master of heaven and earth. You're the master of life and death. You're the master of your enemies. You conquered them, our enemies, through your death on the cross. And I pray that this morning that we would sing with thankful hearts. As we proceed in this Thanksgiving week, that we proceed with thankful hearts. Not because of circumstances, because some of our circumstances don't appear all that great. But thankful that we're in the boat with you. And we know that to be with you is to be safe. 
and secure. Now and forevermore. Remind us of that, we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.